Welcome back to the podcast, friends. I am looking forward to you meeting my new friend, my guest today, Sarah M. We met through another person, Elaine Briefman, who has also been on the podcast. I'll reference Elaine's episode in the show notes if you haven't listened to that episode, but we connected up through her. Sarah is a survivor of genocide, in particular, the killing fields of Cambodia, which would have been in the mid-1970s. So she came, uh, she escaped to Thailand and then um, to a refugee camp and then came here to the States. And so I asked her, I invited her to come on and share her story. She is a a motivational speaker, public speaker today. Um, And so you can always connect with her Uh, in social media, I will have, uh, we talk about her book that she wrote. And so you can find all of that in the show notes, her website, her book, but not only just her story at the end of the episode, we talk about being a refugee. And if you listen to her, tell her story, you will see how much the church played a role simply in showing kindness and ministering to refugees uh, she saw the gospel lived out in her lo- in practical ways and and then began asking questions and was open to hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, that should be an encouragement for us, especially refugee crisis is not going anywhere right now with Russia invading Ukraine, uh, somewhere around 1.5 million. They estimate uh, there'll be a, a you know, somewhere around 1.5 million refugees, Ukrainian refugees. So some practical ways uh, for the church to be the hands and feet of Christ to refugees. And I hope her story will encourage you as well. Continuing to work on this new series, first episode um, for neurodivergent clergy should drop in April. Enjoy, in the meantime, enjoy this episode. We've been trying to tell better stories about women and clergy and the church because we really need to tell better stories. Instead of just complaining about it, what if we flood the airwaves with something different? Uh, well, welcome to the podcast, Sarah. I'm really glad that you could do this. I, I know we met a little bit through Elaine Briefman, and she's been on the podcast. Um, how do you pronounce your last name? Because I want to say it correctly. Uh, M. 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 Like M. Like import. <laughs> yeah. And you were originally born in Cambodia, right? That's, that's correct. Your, yeah, that's your, your family um, of origin. We just talk a little bit about your ministry right now, and then we'll kind of talk about how you got to that place. So what, what does your ministry look like? What are you doing? I know you're a speaker, inspirational speaker. Like, what does that look like? What does that mean? My, um, my ministry currently as a speaker, as you mentioned, um, I speak at a, a few places, especially one organization that found me through my the publication that they published my story in the newspaper and they found me and they invite me to to get familiar with the organization. It's called Stonecroft Ministry. 
is the uh, evangelical organization. So I became become their keynote speaker. So as a keynote speaker, I speak to share my story. And part of my speaking is share that I didn't know uh, who God is. I didn't know who Jesus is, but I found him. I found him and I, I love him and he loved me. So I got to share my full story from the beginning until I meet, meet uh, God. So that's part of my ministry. And I invite people that never met God before, never gave their life to Jesus. Um, they will be invited. And that's part of my ministry. Part of one of my way to speak, to share in my ministry. And the other, the other ministry is that I also speak in the workshop, the upcoming workshop. I speak in the, this workshop is called Finding Peace in the senseless tragedy. So I will help people how to recover, how to find peace, how to, to get out of the tragedy situation. Because if we just drown ourselves in that situation for a long time, we will never get out of that mode. But God is with us. He's ready to help us in return. So we need to... Uh, reach out to God to help us. So that's part of my, my message. And other message when I get to speak, I share about how God saved me because I was almost died a few times through sickness when I was in captivity in the killing fields in Cambodia. And also when I escaped two, three times and without God help me direct my stamp I probably got lost in the jungle. I probably did not find my way out. So God was instrumental. When I look back to my past, I realized God was there. Now I share how God helped me overcome the disaster in my life. And now I become well again and I'm healing from the trauma. And I want to share that it's possible possible that people can be well again, can get back to their normal life again after no matter how bad the tragedy is, God is the healer. Oh, and wow, we need that right now more than ever, right? Yeah. Healing from healing from trauma. There's I mean, so much trauma happening in the world um, in general, but then with the pandemic, it just took it to a whole new level. And you're also an author because you wrote your story. It's written, you have a, you have a book. This is my book. It's called How I Survived the Killing Field. When I gave that title, I thought that everybody know what the killing field is. But now I found out it's a lot of younger people have no idea what are you talking about. I think if they're under 40 they, they're, or 35, they probably have not even heard of it. So will you talk about what is were the killing fields of, it was in Cambodia, the killing fields of Cambodia. So you just talk about what, what was that? How did you get trapped in that? Well, I grew up in the countryside. I was the firstborn in my family, and my parents loved me. So I grew up with love and compassion, and so I feel so safe, so secure. And my parents did not want me to be a farmer. So they always instilled in my mind that you need higher education. So that's what I did. When I graduated from high school, I went off to college. College is about 
three to four hundred miles away from home. Oh wow! Yeah, in the capital city. While I was in college, the communist Khmeros they came in. They took over the country. So the day that they came in, the school was not in session. It's the holiday. It's the national holiday. Everything was shut down. Came in with military, military truck tank, and all the the soldiers wear black and carry big gun on their shoulder, and we didn't know what to expect. The next day, they took all of us as the prisoner of war. So we were pushed and pulled out of our own place on the street and pushed us to go away from the city. So they evacuated the whole, the whole population in, in the country. Nobody can stay in the city anymore. We were walking a long time, a few weeks. And by the time uh, we reached the village, we end up staying with somebody else temporarily until we find our own shelter. And we, they start to push us to work. So I had been moved from there a couple of times and I end up in the big camp. This camp is for single men and women. So now I get trapped into this camp. Everybody was captive. Nobody can go anywhere. I did not know how to get home. And I have no idea what what's going on with my family. I have no idea because we don't have any connection. There's no transportation. There's no communication, no post office, no telephone. So we, we are all in the dark. And I was pushed to work extremely hard. I mean extreme. In the heat, in the rice field. Exhausted, starved. They give us very little food to eat. And the work time is like 15, 16 hours a day. And then the work is in, in the sun all day long. The sun in Cambodia is a tropical country. The average climate is about 100 degrees. Degree. And we work in that heat all day long. All the, everyone who was, a Cam, who was Cambodian, they were just made slaves, basically, right? What nation invaded Cambodia? It's Cambodian. Oh, I understand. Yeah, so, the teaching come from another country, but they teach Cambodian people. Right. So the Cambodians who were communist, they rose up. What was your government structure before the communist party took over? We were a democracy. Up until 1970, it was the kingdom. Yeah, we have uh, we have a ruler ruled by the king, but and then um, from 1970 we become liberal, like become a democracy. Then the communists took over in 1975. Oh wow, 1975. Yeah, if I'm saying anybody under 35 would probably would remember this, unless they had a small little uh, chapter in world history or something like that in school. You mentioned. Did you, you tried to escape several times before you were successful? Like the first time when I was forced to work too long, too hard, too, too hard, and starve, I became sick. I contracted several disease and uh, they still push us to work, even though we are sick. And finally, I, when I cannot go to work anymore, they push us to, to go to a, a place. They said, you need to go to the hospital. 
but that hospital is not really a hospital. It's a place for us waiting for time to die. So when I realized that, I want to get out from that place. So um, I pray and I believe that there is God. I didn't know much about God at that time because I was still young, but I believe there is God. So I pray to God to help me. After praying for a long time, one day I, I realized I have a courage. I said, maybe God gave me a courage to get out. So I sneak out from there. And when I got out, I met somebody who was so kind and she helped me. She talked to the kitchen staff. She said that I can go to work in the kitchen. So that's my first life-saving job. Yeah, so you got out of the field and you worked in the kitchen, worked for someone. Was it like a restaurant or was it somebody's home? No. In that camp, everybody that was captive in that camp, we don't have any utensils to make our own food. It's a kitchen that they prepare food for all of us, 1,000 of us, like a cafeteria kitchen. Eventually, you became a refugee and you made it to the States, to the United States. So how did that happen? How did you escape Cambodia and end up here in the States? There are a few steps before I can escape from, from Cambodia. But first, I need to get out from captivity. After enduring four years. Oh, wow. I was uh, fortunate to work in the kitchen only for seven, six, seven months. And when I feel better, look better, they pull me out of, from the kitchen and throw to, to work in the right field again. But toward the end of four years, they start to move the camp. So they move all of us closer to the jungle. So when I realized they are pushing us to the jungle, how I'm going to get back to my family. So I questioned that and I realized I will never, I will never get out to go to my family. So I decided, well, God gave me the courage to plan an escape. You have to plan an escape because don't see a way out. You have to make an, you have to take action. I plan an escape with three of my friends, three of my close friends, and they, they support me because I'm a leader. <laughs> we need to escape. Do you want to come with me? Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we're all young and innocent. And that, when I look back, I say, God must be with us. God must have directed us then. Because in the middle of the big jungle, in the darkness, in the middle of the night, it's black. We cannot see and we cannot know the direction where to go. But God led us. So you just wandered through the jungle until you found a way? We did not wander. We we tried to track back where we came from. Uh We had just a sense of idea. We don't know exactly. But we, we just want to make sure that the God will not see us because they, they have the big automatic weapon in their hand. If they see us, we, they will kill us right away. So we have to make sure that they don't see us. We, we sneak out quietly, hold hands so we don't lose each other. So we walk all night long. When the morning comes, we realize that we made it. Uh, first, I found my family, and then I stayed with my family for about a year. And then we realized the situation is still not good. So um, my mom encouraged me to, to leave the country. 
to leave the country, it's not as easy as go get the airplane ticket. There is no airplane ticket. There is no airplane to fly anywhere. Right. The country was in a big mess, was destroyed. So we had to cross the border. So we went to, we, I mean, uh, my mom met me up with her cousin and we both went toward the, the border. When we approached the border, we walked basically walk across the jungle, crossing the border. That means we risk stepping on the mine, on the landmine. There's a lot of landmine along the border, but thank goodness we, we were safe because there are a lot of people that killed before us. So the, a lot of landmine was already exploded. So when we cross over to Thailand, we found a refugee camp. The, the UN know about a lot of us to run away, try to escape, to save our life. So they set up a camp to receive us. So we, I found the camp and I registered. And then I was looking for my relative who had been to the United States for a long time as a student. That's the connection I, I have in the United States. Oh, your cousin was already here in the States? No, it's uh, it's my mom's cousin. Oh, okay, your mom's cousin. So, how long were you in the refugee camp in Thailand? Uh, more than a year. Yeah, it's it's not quick and easy because uh-uh. a lot of screening, a lot of process, and so when you came here to the states, because I think this is interesting, people think you just come here and you just whatever get a house and then you just do your thing. You fly here from Thailand. Where do you where did you come in? Where where did you fly in? I landed in New York, New York Airport, International Airport, and I expect that my mom's cousin will come to pick me up. He didn't. He he moved out of state before I arrived. So he got a new job somewhere else, so he need to move. And I saw the sign and <laughs> with my name, I say, Oh, somebody is looking for me. So we found that lady. She's from the Woman Ministry in the Lutheran Church in Connecticut. Her name is Mary. The Lutheran Church had a ministry, and they just show up at the airport and they collect refugees. Um, they have a ministry. My mom's cousin, before he leave, before he moved out, he was a member of that church. So he, oh yeah, okay, yeah. So he told the, that I will be coming. So the church made arrangement for their woman ministry to help. So that's how the connection was. Your So your mom's cousin was here and he was part of the Lutheran church. When did you come to know Christ as your savior? How did that happen? Was that before you came to the States or after? No, I, uh, it's after. Well, I listened to my mom's story. She read a story. And in that story, it shows so clearly to me that there is God that is so big that he knows everything. And he is compassionate and kind. In the story, he rescued the women and the children from the bad people. So give me a very, very clear idea that that's God. He's so big. He's powerful. So when my life was in danger, in the so-called hospital, I pray to that God. 
pray that the God that is above everything, the God that knows everything, the God that is so compassionate and kind and loving, I pray to that God, but I don't really know who he is until, until when I came to the United States. And with the influence of the people that came to help me get started, they never, never say anything about telling me to change religion or anything. No. But one lady, she wanted to help me with my English. And one day she invited me to her church. And she belonged to a different church. So there are a group of church in that area who have, who come together to help the people that the refugee that came to the area. So I got invited to the other church and then and I just want to learn about how these kind people, I was so impressed with all their service, with all their ministry, and they helped me so much. And I was so impressed and I want to learn, to learn yeah. about what they believe. So I keep going to the church. At the beginning, I didn't, I didn't learn much because my English was not that good. One day, one day the pastor's wife, she always took me aside to teach me the Bible, during the Bible study time. And one day she read me the scripture, John 3, 16. So that's the very first time I ever heard about that. And I, I was so amazed how God loved us so much, how Jesus loved us so much that he allowed people to kill him. It made such a big impact on me. And I realized that God already gave up his life to form for me. And there's no waiting time for me. This is it. I, I need, I need God because at that time, my family was in trouble. So I need God more than anything right now because I need to heal myself. I need to, to have peace. I need to have a direction, what to do. So I found Jesus at that time. What was your, your family, when your family raised you, did they have a faith? What was what was your background? The back, their background is Buddhism. Buddhism is a very peaceful, very peaceful uh, religion. But my mom is big on meditation, on compassion, on generosity. So all the the quality that you ever want is individual. It's about taking care of yourself. That's it. But what I see, what we see the difference is that although we are doing good individual peacefully, but we don't get extra help from God like we have in Jesus. When we believe in, in Christ, we have extra help. We cannot do it all by ourselves. We have God is willing and able and, and so kind, ready to help us in that. So, so I think that's a different, and also another different that I see the see the difference is that we have hope that when we leave from this earth, we have a place to go to be with God. Well, that's beautiful. I lo- I love that. And now and now you're living in Florida. Has your family, your parents, or any of your other family, have they come here to the states since you came here? Yeah, a few years after I arrived. My mom gathered her, her son. I had three brothers. 
they all came with my mom to the border. And when they arrived to the, to the refugee camp, there's nobody to register them. They already closed. They closed the process of receiving new, new people. So my family came in in a very difficult time. So it took me five years to be able to bring them over here to the United States. A lot of hard work, but we made it. It's a longer process than the average person knows in, here in the States, the average American, I should say the average American who was born here. And even the process of becoming a citizen is very lengthy. How long did it take you to get your citizenship? About six years, a little more than six years. First, I had to be here five years before I can apply. And then from the application date until the time to get into the U and everything is another year. So it's about six years, but I had to do it because my family depend on me. I need to be a citizen in order to bring them in as an immigrant. I think there are a lot of Americans, even Christians, um, you know, who think that, well, you come here and then you just apply and you become a citizen. And it... <laughs> no, we had to study. We had to know the history, the law and the rule and everything. So there's a lot of questions when we go to be interviewed. Many, many people did not pass the interview, immigration interview. You have to know a certain amount of English. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so like, yeah. So there's a bare minimum. So you're gonna be you're gonna be bilingual, no matter what, to some extent. So you got you have a leg up on most Americans because most of us are not bilingual. <laughs> <laughs> I can say a few German words and a few Spanish words, and that's it. I need to ex I need to expand my my linguistics <laughs> skills. So you came over here and. Did you write your book first or did you start telling your story first? I, I told my story first. For a long time, nobody, I didn't get a chance to talk to anybody about my story. All the women ministry people that helped me, they didn't dare to ask me to tell the story because they know it's horrible. The first couple of years when I was in the United States, there was a movie that came out. It's called the Killing Fields movie. And that movie received a lot of awards. They make a lot of impact, a lot of, um, expose a lot of uh, truth about Cambodia, about the communist Khmeros, about the killing in Cambodia and all that. So um, that movie was very well done. And that's how they know a little bit about my about how we gone through. So they never asked me. But about 20 years later, 20, 25 years later, one by one, when I got to know people and when we sit down and they want the, the question that they asked me, you know, tell us a little bit about your background. And I, this is, this is the truth I told them. My life had been interrupted for about seven years. And then one man, he took me to, to, to sit down. Quietly, he said, what do you mean by your life being interrupted? So I told him my story. Interrupt by the way of living. From 1975 until, 19, until 1981, my life was completely gone. Just the, the time was just 
evaporate from my life. I, it was a time loss in my life. So that's what I mean by <laughs> my life was interrupted. Yeah, from there, I start to tell people one by one, maybe every two, three years, somebody else asked me. So every time I talk and tell my story, they, they encourage me to, oh, you need to write a book. You know, I shake my head and say, I don't know how to write a book and there's no use. Why? Why do you want me to bring bring up such a sad story? What for? Later on, there's one of my friends at the networking meeting. She want me to, to speak in front of the group. So now I grow from one by one to tell in the group. And my story was impactful. People cried. And people tell me how they lost their teenage through suicide. And that grabbed my attention. I said that those people who took their own life, they don't know how other people suffer. And they see the problem is too big to handle. That's why they took their own life. But if they know about how other people suffer, they probably will think twice about taking their own life. So that's when I start to think about sharing more of my story to more people. And then eventually, I met somebody who wanted to help me to get the book out. By that time, I'm ready. I'm ready to share because I know that the story makes a big impact on people's lives. It can change people's lives. Um, in fact, one of my audience members, right after I published my book, I spoke at the Rotary Club. And this one young woman, she was in my audience, but I didn't know. But when I met her a few, a few months later, she called my name clearly. And I was so surprised because how could she know me? I never know her. And she told me, Sarah, you are unforgettable because your story changed my life. I said, how? She said, listen, I have been suicidal all my life. She, she looked like in her late 20s. She said, since I heard your story, changed my mind. Now I changed my mind. I hold on to my job right now. My, I have a full-time job. I have my own apartment. I no longer think about suicide. So that made me so happy. I said, it's all worth it. Although I struggled for four years in the killing field, at least I saved somebody's life. Yeah, your story of resilience and overcoming uh, gives others hope, seeing what happened and, and seeing how God went before you, really. I mean, his providence was there from as early on as your mom telling that story and you you realizing, okay, there's there's a God who is over all things. You mentioned that you got into Toastmasters. So you talk about how did you get into that? And then how, like, what is it? How has that helped you in your ministry? Yeah, Toastmaster, um, I was introduced by a friend who who I know, and he um, he also referred me to get a, a good job in the in a big corporation. That corporation, they build airplane in Texas. At that time, I live in Texas, and um, he's from China. He's from you know he's Chinese, but he used to live in. He married a Cambodian wife, so he invited me to Toastmaster. 
because he knows that I need I need help. So I joined Postmaster in a corporate club. I like it, and then and then my husband moved, get a job, and so on. So we move a few times, and finally we end up in Florida. We so now we live in Florida, and I found the club. So I found this club that I like, and I just just keep going because I know I need a lot of help with my language, with, with my courage. I was I used to be very timid and shy. When I speak, I speak very softly. Nobody can hear me. Because that's how the Cambodian people is. They're really supposed to be gentle, so polite, and just being, <laughs> being a Cambodian girl. You know, you don't speak loud, laugh loud. Oh, no, no. I had to break out from that mold. So Toastmaster teach me to help me to build confidence. Help me to do a better presentation when I speak, whether one-on-one -on -one with people or whether it's in front of the group. And also teach me the leadership skill. There's different paths that people take to learn how to um, speak and engage audiences and share their stories. And Toastmasters is one of those a little bit familiar. I've never been part of it, but I know others who've been part of it and have benefited. Um, so I suspect there's probably listeners who have never heard of that. And will you talk a little bit about how people who have been suicidal really felt encouraged when they heard your story of suffering and resilience? What advice would you give to people who are struggling, who are who, who are trying to build resilience and be overcomers, kind of like overcome that tr that trauma in their life? I Sometimes I was invited to speak on building your resiliency. Resiliency is very important. We are not born with resiliency. We can learn, we can add, um, we can adapt, we can um, keep growing our resiliency. The first part of being resilient is that you have to have a good relationship with people around you. A relationship is so critical, it's healthy. It's healthy and it builds resiliency because when you have your loved one, your family, your friend, your close friend, and um, your neighbor, when you get along with people, when you love people, they love you. That relationship will help you to be healthy. When the pandemic hit, a lot of people get stuck in their own, their own place. They lost that interaction. Mm. They lose the ability to be resilient because they lose the human touch. Human relationship is so critical. And that's, that's one part. And the second part is that when we are in a really bad place or gone through a bad situation like myself, we have to find something good that we appreciate, that we are thankful for, we are grateful for. So even though I've gone through very very difficult time, but I always find something good that I'm, I'm grateful for. Like I shared earlier, I'm grateful that God directed my step to find my way out of the jungle. Mm. Grateful that the communist medal did not kill me, even though they worked me so hard, but they didn't kill me. I'm still alive. Although I got stuck in a very bad place, but my mind was not stuck. 
my mind was dreaming about how can I survive in order to reunite it with my family again. So you had to have a sense of purpose. What, what are you looking to live for? We have life, but we, we live not just for our own good. We live for other people. When we have a sense of purpose, the purpose that is bigger than ourselves, we will make it through. Be grateful for what we have. Have relation, good relationship with people that we love. And lastly, you can always reframe, reframe your negativity. That's a skill that I can teach. Reframe is similar to what, what to look for, the positive, what to look for in, in order to build your optimism. If, if you are pessimistic, you think everything will go bad, will go dark. No, when you have faith, you cannot help it. You have faith in God, things will get better. I like what you said about reframing your, reframing your thoughts. The scriptures tell us to be trans, have their mind should be transformed, right? It's so it's more than just praying a prayer. It is allowing Christ to actually transform our mind as well as our spirit. So powerful. I know we have, I know a lot of my listeners are clergy and of course the refugee crisis never goes away. There's always refugees. And of course, right now with everything happening in Ukraine, well, we're going to see more and more refugees. So if there are churches who are, they, they want to take some kind of a practical step in somehow helping refugees, just some advice on churches who maybe they've never gotten involved in helping refugees. Yes, yes. That's um, helped me to remind my, myself when I first came. I was a refugee and I was helped by the, the woman ministry in the church. We need everything. <laughs> the refugee need everything. Whatever you can teach, whatever you can do. Because first of all, we had to, to get our, our system through the government system, get uh, social security, get the medical insurance cover, whether by state or how, however you can. So all the basic necessary, if you can provide that, if you can have them. And also they need to go to the, the hospital or the medical clinic to screen, to, to get all the shot necessary and to screen out to see if they don't have any um, infectious disease. Um, if they do, there will be a remedy for it. So yeah. the medical part, the, uh, the social security part, the, uh, and the schooling, they will love you for it if you can provide them with um, education, with language, and the direction. With, if they have small children, help them with, put the children in school. They, they have a lot of needs especially if they have small children, they have older people in the family. For the working adult, you could probably need to, to uh, direct them to the school, the trade school, the trade mm -hmm. school that, that teach the skill. I benefit from a trade school big time. Yeah, when, when I first looked for a job, it's 1981, I, I would apply for any job that is possible. So my friend Mary took me to different place to apply. 
And this one job, it's just the house cleaning. Just no, it's called the home house homemaker or something like that in the nursing home. Just just oh yeah, housekeeping. Yeah, Yeah, housekeeping. Yeah, just to clean the sheets and everything. I couldn't get that job, so I was so upset. I I cried. I was mad at myself. I said, how I was a college student. Mm. I couldn't get a, a cleaning job. That's pathetic. So that's my anger, and it pushed me to learn faster, to learn my English faster because I I could not speak English. That's why. That's why they couldn't. They did not hire me. And then I had to go and learn learn a trade in the in the trade school to get a skill so that I can find a job. One of my friends, one of my ministry women, teach me about the coin, the dollar. <laughs> the penny, the, the dime, the nickel, all that. Just a little thing like that. We don't think it's important. But for us, we never know the dollar before. <laughs> yeah, we don't have easy money here. We we did a mission trip in the Philippines. I'm like, just, just pesos. You just keep adding them up. <laughs> <laughs> here we have all these different names for our money. That is good advice and very practical ways. Um, you know, we don't have to have we don't have to have a special degree for a lot of that. Even though they need an apartment, you probably need to have to guide them in the apartment how to operate things because oh, yeah. a lot of refugees came from a country that do not have the equipment like we do here in the United States. Just walk through the the apartment, how to do this, how to turn on the stove, how to how to bake things in the oven and all that. Just a little basic stuff like that. It would be a big help. Yeah, yeah, all those things you just take for granted, right? We just, we were raised that way. So that's yeah. what we know. There are, there are other people out there who have stories of suffering and trauma, not necessarily as refugees, but just other trauma. So that the question that your friend asked you or that you asked, why should I tell my story? What answer would you have for those for those people who are who are saying, "Well, why should I tell my story?" It depends on where where you will tell your story. If you are seeking help, it's good to talk to somebody. They mm. a good listening ear. They might have some idea, some guidance. So that's I'm talking about mentor. Maybe you can. Right somebody as a mentor to help you. But if, if you want to share on the in the public space, right now there's a lot of place you can share like podcast, like today, like I share on the podcast. There's so many, many different kinds of podcasts. And all the people that need help, they go search in the podcast. They search for the topic that might help them. So your story can help somebody that are going through the same similar story. They probably can benefit from your story. So if you don't have to survive the killing fields like me, because if you are, you survive a certain illness, you overcome cancer, you overcome the disaster of the divorce, or lost a job, or loss of the business. A lot of people lost their business, the economic downturn. Trauma is trauma. 
So true. Yeah. yeah, you can help somebody else. A lot of people told me that I inspired them and helped them. So I'm, I appreciate that when they tell me because I did not want to tell my story for nothing. It's now about bragging here. It, you know, I tell that, you know, no matter how bad things are, if you never give up hope, you will always have hope. We all need hope. Uh, well, it's a beautiful story. And you know, you found a husband and you're, you're, you have your family. And how did you meet your husband? Um, I was introduced by, by my cousin. Yeah. <laughs> and, and how long have you been married now? 32 years. Oh, that's wonderful. How beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. 